Our scripture text this evening is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Our text is 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 16 and 18. Uh, 16 through 18. So hear God's word, beginning at verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. A book that I highly recommend uh, is D. Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Its Cures. And in this book, the author is dealing with what he calls the problem of depression. I'm not sure his definition exactly lines up with what we these days might call clinical depression. But nevertheless, he's dealing with um, the problem of Christians who are not experiencing the joy of the Lord like they should. He, and he, he deals with this problem for a number of reasons. And uh, one of the reasons that he gives is he wants to help those who are struggling with this unpleasant state. But then he adds to this. He says, this isn't all. And he writes, but there is another and more important reason, which is that we must face this problem, this problem he's talking about again of being depressed, for the sake of the kingdom of God and for the glory of God. In a sense, a depressed Christian is a contradiction in terms, and he has a very poor recommendation for the gospel. Now, we believe that God extends his kingdom partly through his people. We know that he has oftentimes done some of the most notable things in the history of the church through the simple Christian living of some quite ordinary people. Nothing is more important, therefore, than that we should be delivered from a condition which gives other people looking at us the impression that to be a Christian means to be unhappy, to be sad, to be morbid, and that the Christian is one who, quote, scorns delights and lives laborious days, end quote. There are many, indeed, who give this as a reason for not being Christian, for giving up all interest they may have ever had in the Christian faith. They say, look at the Christian people, look at the impression they give. And they're very fond of contrasting us with people out in the world, people who seem to be so thrilled by the things they believe in, whatever they may be. They shout at their football matches. They talk about the films they have seen. They're full of excitement and want everybody to know it. But Christian people too often seem to be perpetually in the doldrums and too often give this appearance of unhappiness and of lack of freedom and of absence of joy. There's no question at all, but this is the main reason why large numbers of people have ceased to be interested in Christianity. And I would want to pause there for a moment and say, Humanly speaking, that may be the case, right? Um, Ultimately, people aren't interested in Christianity because uh, they need changed hearts. But nevertheless, we should not, by our example, give people a reason not to be a Christian. And uh, he goes on to say, And let us be quite frank and admit it. There is a sense in which there is some justification for their attitude, and we have to confess that their criticism is a fair one. Behooves us, therefore, not only for our own sakes but also for the sake of the kingdom of God and the glory of the Christ in whom we believe to represent him and his cause, his message and his power in such a way that men and women, far from being antagonized, will be drawn and attracted as they observe us, whatever our circumstances or condition. 
We must so live that they will be compelled to say, would to God I could be like that. Would to God I could live in this world and go through this world as that person does. And obviously, if we are cast down ourselves, we are never going to be able to function in that way. End quote. This brings up the questions, what is our witness? What is your witness to the world like in terms of your countenance, in terms of your attitude? The verses before us this evening are essentially a series of commands from God that have to do with your attitude as you go through life. You are to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances. And verse 18 tells us that this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. As one of Christ's disciples, as those pledged to obey him, you must understand that these commands are part of how God wants you to live. In the Greek, it doesn't actually say this is the will of God for you, but it says this is a will of God for you. This is the Holy Spirit's way of telling us that these commands are not They're not the sum total of God's will for your life, but they are a part of it. And every command of God is to be taken seriously. We need to be reminded of these particular commands because these are some of the most difficult of the commands that God has given us to implement into our lives. It's also important that we study the meaning of these commands because there are quite a number of misconceptions out there of, about what God is requiring. So when we are told to rejoice always, you are essentially being told to always be joyful, to always have a song in your heart, to face all of life with gladness in your heart. And there are a number of responses that I've heard to this or that I'm sure you can, can, can uh, contemplate, that I've contemplated being made to this command And uh, one response is to say, well, to rejoice always, that is simply impossible. Uh, There are too many bad things that happen in life, too many trials that make it impossible for me to have joy all the time. In in some cases, there's no way somebody might say that I can rejoice. For instance, I can't rejoice when a loved one dies, and I, I also can't help it that I feel down when things at home or at work aren't going the right way. This is how I react sometimes, and I cannot help it. And another response is to say something like this, well, surely God doesn't expect us to rejoice about everything that happens. Surely God doesn't expect us to rejoice when disease and death and crime and accidents and disasters and sin and, and the like strike us. That would be morbid. Well, how would you respond to these responses? Well, in the first case, it is true that for us, it is impossible for us to have joy all the time, but that doesn't make it okay. It does not make it right. The reason it is so difficult for us to rejoice always is because we are sinners. The fact of the matter is that God is right now telling you that his will is for you to rejoice always. Even when sad things happen as a believer, you can and you should rejoice. You, you should rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. And rejoicing always doesn't mean never shedding a tear, but it means having joy and hope in Christ 
that enables you to rise above your circumstances. The fact that you find yourself incapable of keeping this command perfectly is, is not an excuse, but rather a call to repentance. Uh, this is an area in your life and in my life that needs to change um, as we seek to please God. In the second case, there are things that are a part of our world that in and of themselves do not seem like they could possibly be good things. And it would be completely inappropriate and certainly not what God has in mind for us to throw a party because a murder was committed or to get a huge smile on our faces at the news of a tornado taking lives. Uh, We don't rejoice in tragedies because we love evil or because we want people to be hurt. Of course not. But you and I as God's people are to rejoice always. And we can rejoice always because God is always blessing us, even through the so-called tragedies of life. As one of God's redeemed children, the very worst thing that could happen to you, as you in your own mind can think about what that would be, that would be merely a tool in God's hands to draw you closer to him. Belonging to Christ and having him sovereignly guiding your life means that there is never a reason not to rejoice. And then there is the related commandment, pray without ceasing. Praying without ceasing will enable you to rejoice always, as well as to also keep that other commandment, which we will deal with in a moment, which is to always give thanks. I agree with Leon Morris in his commentary on this passage when he says that these three commandments do not represent three different attitudes to life, but three aspects of one attitude, end quote. And this is true even of the commandment to pray without ceasing. To pray without ceasing is more about your attitude. It's more about your perspective on life than about folding your hands and closing your eyes. This brings up a misconception that some have about this command. Some think that the closest fulfillment to obeying this commandment would be to be a monk in a monastery, spending 16 hours a day praying in a closed cell. But praying without ceasing can't possibly mean that we are only to pray. Um, If that's what's meant, praying for any moment of time less than 24 hours a day would be a violation of this commandment and therefore would be sin. Obviously, it's not possible for us as human creatures to keep this commandment if it means praying 24 hours a day. And uh, even Adam and Eve in their perfect state, even Jesus Christ, while here on earth, and we know he was without sin, Jesus did not pray 24 hours a day. But part of our nature, in fact, part of our nature as human beings requires us to sleep some six to eight hours a day. And so to spend every moment, waking, waking moment, kneeling in prayer uh, is not possible. And also it would contradict the many other requirements in Scripture that are made of us. We are to work, we are to come to worship on Sunday, even in our worship here this evening, not praying the entire time. Uh, We are to witness to others about Christ, we are to help the poor. So then what is meant by this command to pray without ceasing? To pray without ceasing basically means to be ever conscious of your dependence upon God. 
It means living your life in a way where every waking moment you're viewing your life in its relation to God. It means living life in the spirit of prayer. Leon Morris in his commentary states the matter so well when he writes this. He says, Christianity is a religion which turns men's thoughts away from themselves and their puny deeds to the great God who has brought who has wrought a stupendous salvation for them in Christ our Savior. It is of the very essence of the faith that it insists upon man's inability to bring about his salvation, either in the sense of the initial act whereby he enters on a state of salvation, or in the sense of the day-to-day living out of the Christian life. For the putting away of his sins, the atonement wrought by the Son of God is necessary. For living the dedicated life, the power of the indwelling spirit alone suffices. All along the way, man is made to feel his own insufficiency. But alongside that is the power and the love of Almighty God. God will not leave man. He comes to him at Calvary and at Pentecost. He provides for the deepest needs of man's soul. In light of all this, the Christian man is ever conscious of his dependence on God. He realizes that he is always surrounded by God's love, and that therefore, although he is not able to achieve anything worthwhile in his own strength, he has all that he needs. This knowledge will keep him always rejoicing. Why should he be otherwise? And it will keep him always in the spirit of prayer. Prayer and rejoicing are closely related. For often the believer finds in prayer the means of removing that which was the barrier to his joy. Prayer is not only thought of as the offering of petitions in set words. Prayer is fellowship with God. Prayer is the realization of the presence of our Father. And though it is quite impossible for us always to be uttering the words of prayer, it is possible and necessary that we should always be living in the spirit of prayer. If we live in this way, conscious continually of our dependence on God, conscious of his presence with us always, conscious of his will to bless, then our general spirit of prayerfulness will in the most natural way overflow into uttered prayer. It is instructive to read again and again in Paul's letters the many prayers that he interjects. Prayer was as natural to Paul as breathing. At any time, he was likely to break off his argument or to sum it up by some prayer of greater or less length. In the same way, our lives can be lived in such an attitude of dependence on God that we will easily and naturally move into the words of prayer on all sorts of occasions, great and small, grave and gay. Prayer is to be constant, end quote. So what does it look like day by day to live in the spirit of prayer? It means that when you wake up in the morning, you are thinking about your day as a day that God has given you to serve him. As you get dressed, eat breakfast, get ready for the day, your thoughts are going to naturally be turning to what you are going to be doing in that day. And at that moment, you ought to be recognizing God must bless what I do if it is to be successful at all. And so you're praying that God will bless your work. As you go outside on a beautiful morning, the the beauty that you see should be leading you in your heart to praise God. You recognize your creator in the things that you see. And when in your day you meet other people, your thoughts go to God and how God wants you to minister to them. 
You pray for God to help you be a good witness. You pray for a good opportunity to witness. And during those times you have where you are alone with your thoughts, you pray for the needs of yourself, your family, and others. And then there's the other side of constant prayer. When you encounter trying situations, you plead to God for help. You ask him to keep a bad attitude in check. You think about how God would want you to react, and you ask him to help you see things from his perspective. And then there's the moment that you sin, whether in your thoughts, words, or deeds. There's an outburst of anger, an impure thought, an inappropriate conversation. You realize what you have done, and so right then and there in your mind, you repent before God. And so what I'm talking about essentially is all throughout the day, living in fellowship with God. You're praying throughout the day. I'm not talking about necessarily in a formal way, but in your thoughts. In your mind, you're constantly looking to God. And of course, if you're constantly viewing your life in relation to God, you're also going to find that the more formal prayers of uttered words will also become a regular part of your life. You see, living your life from this God-centered perspective is exactly what will enable you to keep this command to, in everything, give thanks. When God brings tough times into your life, his will is not simply that you get through them, but that you are thankful for them. I once heard a pastor preach on this topic, and he said that the Lord does not require us to be thankful for tough times. Uh, he, He said that we are simply called to be thankful for how God works and how he blesses us through such times. And so there's this dichotomy of being thankful in all circumstances versus being thankful for all circumstances. Well, I would direct you to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20. Notice the wording that the Holy Spirit gives here. If we back up to verse 19, it says, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not simply giving thanks in all circumstances, but thankful for all circumstances. One commentator that I read made a similar statement to that pastor that I once heard. He said, the thanks are not for the circumstances, but for the fact that in all circumstances, the Lord is there. The perspective of these kinds of statements seem to be that things like diseases and disasters and, these, and other such trials in life are really not sent by God. Uh, that they're really not part of his plan. Many attempt to separate God's work in our lives from the means that God uses to bless us. This view says that we are thankful for God in the midst of circumstances or despite our circumstances as he helps us just to get through them, as he helps us to endure them, um, but we're not thankful for the circumstances themselves that he brings into our lives. That is an unbiblical dichotomy. The Holy Spirit says in everything give thanks. Literally, in connection with everything. The idea is that you must give thanks for every circumstance that God brings into your life because that hard circumstance is what he has planned for your blessing. 
Suppose I'm diagnosed with a disease. Now, I'm not going to be thankful for the disease as a disease, but I can and be, should be thankful for my disease, what God has brought into my life as a tool for my sanctification. For apparently, God decided illness was necessary for me, and I can be sure that he is using it for a good purpose in my life. As an old saint um, was quoted who was on the very edge of the grave, he said, I would not have missed it for anything because he saw how the, Lord's, uh, the Lord was working in his life through the struggle that he went through. It's wrong to try to separate what God is doing in your life from how he is doing it. The circumstances that God brings into your life have been planned by God. They are actually the way that God has chosen to bless you. The blessing is not despite them. Um, Your circumstances, no matter what they may be, are sent in love. You should thank God for them. To give thanks in everything means that there is a reason for thanksgiving and rejoicing to be found even in things like murders and tornadoes and in things like disease and persecution. And everything includes every kind of affliction. And you have every reason to rejoice and to give thanks. Why? Because everything that happens in your life is good from the perspective of what God is doing to strengthen you spiritually through it. God works all things together for your good child of God. The key, the way to rejoicing always, the key to in everything giving thanks is to live your life in the spirit of prayer. To keep these commandments, you have to view and live your life from God's perspective. You need to view your life in spiritual terms. And of course, you and I, because of our sinful nature, tend to do the opposite. We tend to agree with the world that the key to happiness is what the world calls having the good life, a life filled with earthly and material pleasures. For the world, the goal of life is to have a lot of money, to buy material things. And because happiness is thought to be dependent upon our circumstances, the world does everything it can to guarantee a life without any stresses, a, a, a solid bank account is important, a nice home and car, a well-paying job. And of course we want things to go well. We, we want our daily work to go well and smoothly. We don't like it when things break. We don't like it when our plans are disrupted we, and, and when we can't make the kind of money that we would like to have. And we find ourselves sometimes even devastated when disease strikes or when an accident or injury halts us in our tracks. We don't naturally like it when property is damaged by storms or fire, and many people find themselves just devastated emotionally by the loss of their earthly possessions. They, they Apparently, their, their lives have been just utterly turned upside down. Why? Because their lives are defined by their possessions. And if we could have things our way, yeah, life would always be easy. It would be fun. We would have the money to, to, to buy and to do the things we want to do. And we tend to think that that's the kind of life that would make us happy. But the reality is that the pleasures of this world are temporary at best. Money cannot buy true lasting joy. The reality is that the source of true lasting joy is knowing God in a relationship of fellowship and friendship through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Psalm 34.10 says, The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Psalm 37.4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 16.11, You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This life of genuine and lasting joy is called in the Bible eternal life. And uh, this is a life possible only through the saving work of Jesus Christ, received by faith. 1 John 5.11 says, and this is the testimony, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. What is life all about? Is it about Christ or is it about the things of this world? Scriptural perspective is that life is it's having Christ. He who has the Son has life. And so the biblical perspective then is that whatever would happen to us in our earthly lives that draws us closer to Jesus Christ, anything that enriches your relationship with him, that is a wonderful thing. That is something worth rejoicing over. And naturally, the weaker we recognize ourselves to be, um, and, and the, the more, and thus the more we live lives of prayerful dependence on God, the more we're going to look to Christ and his strength. And it sounds odd to our ears, but the weaker we know ourselves to be, the more we find ourselves strengthened in him. And what is it that helps us to recognize our weakness? What, el- what is it that causes us to lean all the more upon the Lord? Is it not trials and tribulations? Is it not those circumstances that feel like the rug is being pulled out from under us? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 of what Jesus said to him. He said, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. And what is Paul's response to this reality? And what is his application of this reality in his life? He writes, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. He's boasting. He's glad about his weaknesses, he says, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. And yet we have people saying, no, we don't rejoice in these things. We just rejoice despite them. The apostle says, I delight in these things. I delight in all of these trials, these difficulties that are happening in my life because when I am weak, then I am strong. First Peter, the apostle Peter also talks a lot about suffering, and he writes in the fourth chapter of his first epistle, 1 Peter 4, these words in verses 12 and 13. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice, rejoice when these trials come upon you to test you insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Because trials strengthen me in Christ, I am thankful for my trials. Because whatever happens to me as a believer in my earthly life, 
cannot separate me from God or from any of those spiritual things that I value. There is nothing in this world that can take away my joy. You and I can rejoice always because in Christ we always have what makes us truly joyful. And consequently, trying circumstances shouldn't detract from our joy in Christ one bit. And the reason why <coughs> the reason why they can and do, they do seem to detract from our joy from time to time is because our values are not what they should be. As soon as you find your happiness in things other than Christ, you're going to find that your happiness is on a very shaky foundation indeed. Anything and everything other than Christ does not stay the same. Everything of this world comes and goes, and it can be in a mere moment. Perhaps you would say that right now your life is great because there are no problems. Or perhaps you would say that right now your, your life is horrible because you have many problems. Both perspectives are not where God wants you to be. He doesn't want you to evaluate your life in terms of problems. He wants you to evaluate your walk with him. Where do you stand with the Lord? Is he number one in your life? Is your life all about fellowship with him? Are you content in God? What do you value? How much do you value a relationship with the Lord and being close to the Lord? Look at your life. Would you say that day in and day out you are a joyful person? Do you find yourself giving thanks for circumstances that would fill other people with despair? The church in Thessalonica consisted of members who were persecuted for their faith. Remember back to chapter 1, verse 6, the apostle said, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. And yet, what does Paul go on to say? He says, they received the, the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. With the joy of the Holy Spirit. Well, how is this possible? Leon Morris responds in his commentary, quote, They thought more of their Lord than of their difficulties, more of their spiritual riches in Christ than of their poverty on earth, more of the glorious future when their Lord should come again than of their unhappy past, end quote. So the key to rejoicing always and in everything giving thanks and all in the context of praying without ceasing is to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Jesus Christ died on the cross in order to suffer all of the wrath that, that God's law says you deserve because of your sins. Jesus died so that you can have this eternal life of fellowship with God. He died so that that sin that separates you from God can be forgiven and set aside. To have this eternal life, you must simply repent of your sins and receive and rest upon Christ alone as your Savior and in receiving Christ and in knowing him as your Savior, you receive the gift of a life that, that has a joy that can never be taken away. And you're joined by faith to Christ to become one of his dear children, and this is a relationship that never changes. You're loved, and it, it, it's not possible that God would do anything to you, for you, but what is best. Everything in your life is sent by Christ out of love to bless you, and your life is not always easy. You know that, but your life as a believer is a good life because everything that is happening to you is by God's own design. What you need to know God and to experience your relationship with him more fully. 
So rejoice in your Savior. Give thanks for what God is doing to bless you spiritually, even those trying circumstances. Live a life of prayer where every day you consciously know you need God and you know that he is always there with you. More than that, believe that God is for you. The apostle writes in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And the implied answer is that the gift of Jesus proves God's willingness to, to, to freely give us everything that is truly worth having. Rejoice, pray, and give thanks because in Christ you have a Savior who is working all things together for your good. Uh, that good being his glory and your spiritual blessing. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we humbly confess that we don't always rejoice in all that is taking place in our lives. We at times fall prey to worry and anxiety, to anger and discouragement, losing sight of who you are and of what you have done for us in Christ. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us, that you would cleanse us through the blood of your Son who was given, delivered up for us all. And uh, Lord, we thank you that in Christ we have every reason to rejoice always. And we ask that you would help us to live prayerful lives, that we would always recognize our dependence upon you, and that we would trust your ways with us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.